My wife, Lindsay, has always been fascinated by the story of the Titanic. I don't know why that is. I think partly it's because she was a teenager when the movie came out and teen heartthrob Leonardo DiCaprio starred in the Titanic and she hadn't met me yet. And so, you know, the story of the Titanic is a tragic story. You're seeing images of it behind me. You know, the thing about every documentary that has been made about the Titanic, every movie that's been made about it, every book that has been made and read, all the media that's been consumed has all been consumed or made by people who have the one thing no one had there that night in 1912. Hindsight. Hindsight. So this is how the story goes. We know why the Titanic sank, but nobody you see pictured in any of those photos had any reason to suspect that that boat would sink. So as the story goes, in the night of April 14th, 1912, the Titanic is cruising full speed into a collection of icebergs. Six, six warning messages are sent to Captain Smith, but he ignores those messages. He believed, like Shipbuilder Magazine said, that the Titanic was practically unsinkable. And so they proceeded at full speed. But the Titanic struck this iceberg, I think you'll see it behind me in just a second, struck this iceberg on its starboard side. Ultimately, the Titanic was ripped in half. And what took three years to build sank to the bottom of the ocean in less than three hours, taking down 1,500 lives with it. Now, if Captain Smith had known the Titanic was not unsinkable, If Captain Smith had known that this iceberg would spell his doom and the doom of 1,500 others, don't you think he would have turned? Right, don't you think he would have changed course if he'd known that? But he didn't know because we don't know what we don't know. But you and I have the advantage that nobody else had that night and that is hindsight. And you know what they say about hindsight? It's 2020, right? So when we read the stories of Jesus like we're doing this morning, what we have is an advantage over everyone in the stories that we're reading. We have what nobody in any of those stories had, which is hindsight. And we're in our second week in a series where we are looking at the last week of Jesus's life on earth. We started last week with Sunday, the last Sunday of that last week of his life when he enters into Jerusalem. Today, we're on Monday. We're going to continue this series until Easter when he is resurrected that following Sunday. Today, we're on Monday. And hindsight totally influences how we read these stories of the last week of of Jesus' life. So to start to understand what happens Monday, you've got to start Sunday night. So on Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he rides into Jerusalem with all kinds of fanfare, like the long-awaited king of Israel. And like the long-awaited king of Israel was supposed to do, the first thing Jesus does is he heads straight for the temple where there should be a celebration, a changing of the guard. The king has arrived. And this is what we find in Mark 11, verse 11, that night, Sunday night. Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, 
he went out to Bethany with the 12. Wait, what? That's it? I mean, can you imagine everybody that's been in this parade following Jesus to come to the temple? They're waiting on him to come into the temple and do a big thing. And he just walks in, he looks around for a minute, looks at his watch and says, hey, let's go to bed, right? Can you imagine? This detail is really easy to skip over here at verse 11, but it makes, it helps make a lot more sense of what we're about to read starting in verse 12. Because what happens in verses 12 and following is the story that you're probably familiar with. It's the story of when Jesus comes into the temple and starts turning over the tables of the money changers, those who are selling things inside the temple, driving all of the merchants out. You remember that scene? (laughs) Well, here's, here's the important detail that's easy to miss. Jesus was not in a blind rage on Monday. He wasn't surprised when he walked into the temple because he had been there Sunday night and looked around. So everything he does on Monday... Everything we're about to read is calculated. He's not just throwing a fit. He's doing this on purpose. So let's pick up early Monday morning before he gets to the temple. We're going to see what happens leading up to the temple and then just after. Let's pick up in verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany. So they had spent the night in Bethany. They're coming back to Jerusalem. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. Well, when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. He's back. And then began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. (laughs) And they began looking for a way to, to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, still Monday, Jesus and his disciples went out out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along the next morning, they saw the tree withered from the roots, the fig tree. And Peter remembered and said, Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and doesn't doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. (laughs) So this is what we call a Markin sandwich. Okay. A Markin sandwich. The best way to picture this is like a grilled cheese. Okay. What you have here are two pieces of bread and sandwiched between those two pieces of bread is some cheese. Okay. And it's all melted together. It's toasted. There's butter that's running through it. It's got that crispy brown sheen on the outside. You're getting hungry. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's a grilled cheese. Okay. So you've got the two pieces of bread, which are the fig tree stories. And sandwiched between is this temple story, but they're cooked together. You can't pull them apart. You're not supposed to. If you pulled it apart, you'd have a big mess on your hands and you'd totally miss what you're supposed to be tasting when you 
look at this story. <laughs> now, we are reading this story after the fact. We have hindsight, right? So just like some of Mark's earliest readers, we're reading this story after the fall of the Jerusalem temple. So this is a couple decades after Jesus has left this earth. And most people, most scholars think that Mark is written just before the fall of the temple. So what I want you to do is I want you to imagine somebody a couple years after Mark has been written. They didn't know Jesus. They've heard stories about him. And they're reading through the gospel of Mark. They've got it laid out on their lap in front of them. And they're sitting in Jerusalem. And what they're looking at in front of them is this mound of rubble from when Rome destroyed that temple. And they've been trying to make sense of that for a long time. And for the longest time, they have blamed Rome for the fall of that temple. And now they're reading this grilled cheese story about Jesus entering the temple and condemning it. And they look up at this pile of rubble where the temple once stood and they think to themselves, oh, maybe that's why this happened. You know, maybe this has less to do with Rome and has more to do with, with God, more to do with Jesus. And so that makes them really want to know, what is Jesus so upset about that Monday when he comes into the temple? And what is he so upset about that, that causes him to condemn that temple and leads to this? Okay, again, most scholars would say it's not because they had a coffee shop in the temple. Okay, it's not because they had a little bookstore out in the commons area or they occasionally had a children's clothing sale in their life center. That is not the problem here. Okay. The problem is twofold. It's first, it's based on the economic principle of supply and demand. We'll come back to that. And secondly, it's how people use that principle of supply and demand for selfish interest. So let me kind of give you a, a sense of what's happening this Monday when people are coming to the temple. This is Passover. People have come from all over the place to Jerusalem to celebrate this event. That means they have traveled a long way, some hundreds of miles to come to the temple for this week-long celebration. So in Israel's consciousness, okay, the presence of God is not in every person's heart like we believe. The presence of God is in one place. It's in the temple in Jerusalem. So these people have come for this once a year opportunity to be in the presence of God. The only problem is that to come into God's presence, you need the stuff that those people in the temple are selling. Okay, you need animals or produce for sacrifice. Okay, and if you don't have those, you can't get into the temple. Okay, have any of you ever tried to travel 100 miles with a goat? <laughs> right, without a trailer on your truck? Right, okay, that would be really difficult. So what do you do? You leave your goat at home, you travel to Jerusalem expecting I will buy it there. But the locals in Jerusalem know that. And they know you're going to come into the temple. These poor people from all over Israel are going to try to come into the presence of God. And they're going to want so badly to be in God's presence that we can charge them anything we want for these goats. We're going to raise the prices Okay, that's why Jesus doesn't say, you've got a coffee shop. I can't believe you have a coffee shop. What does he call them? He calls them a den of 
robbers, thieves, right? They're committing robbery here. But remember what they're selling. They're selling the presence of God. They're exploiting the presence of God. Keeping people from entering that presence for their own selfish reasons. So this worship space has become about them and not about others, and by way of being about others, about God. Because Jesus says, I want my house, the house of prayer, to be a house of prayer for all nations, but they've made it about them. So you can imagine this person reading Mark years later, looking at the temple, reading this story, making sense of that, hearing Jesus calling those people in the temple robbers, looking at that pile of rubble and thinking, oh, oh, that's why this happened. So what does that have to do with the fig tree, the pieces of toast on either side of the cheese? Well, Israel has often been called a fig tree in the Old Testament. For example, in Hosea 9, we read this. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Now you read this and you know, okay, that helps me interpret this story in some way. Even if you're not sure, you can tell this idea of early fruit on the fig tree before the fig tree is in season. You can tell this has some alignment with our story today. And sure enough, so Jesus in our story, before he goes to the temple, he goes out of his way, we're told, to a distant fig tree, much like those who've traveled many miles to come to the temple. And he goes to this temple, this fig tree, I'm sorry, and he knows it's early in season. In other words, it's probably not going to have figs, but he expects to find figs hanging off of its limbs. And what we see here is that there was this time when Israel was like a fig tree that always had fruit on its limb. In fact, the reason that God chose Israel, we're told in Hosea, is because nobody else has figs, but Israel has figs even when the climate isn't perfect. Even when it's not the season, he could always count on fruit hanging off of their limb. But now, apparently they don't have any fruit. And the same disappointment that Jesus feels as he approaches this fig tree and finds it barren, he then feels in the, the temple. In other words, he's saying that what he sees in the temple is this group of people who've become self-interested consumers and not producers. You know, much like this fig tree, Jesus expects his people to be producing fruit and here at the temple where he thinks he will find his people, he cannot find any fruit. They're consumers, not producers. They are getting in the way of more people growing more closely to God. So like the disciples looking at that withered fig tree, you and I look back on the story of the temple and what Jesus condemns it for. And we say, oh, that's why that happened. Hindsight is 2020. You know who didn't have the advantage of hindsight in this story? The tree. It's a tree. Right? You can imagine if this tree was to talk to Jesus, the tree would say, Jesus, I don't have any figs right now. 
because it's not the season for figs. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know, but I expect figs. And he's like, it's not the season, right? No other trees have figs right now, Jesus. He doesn't have the advantage of hindsight. You know who else doesn't have the advantage of hindsight? The people in the temple that day. Do you think they think about themselves as selfish? Probably not, right? Everybody else in the temple, all the other locals in Jerusalem are selling their stuff here, making a buck off of this. Everybody else is doing it. It's not selfish, right? Everybody else is doing it. And can you imagine you're in the temple one day, you're minding your business, you're selling your goats and your doves and in walks this guy you have never seen before who calls you selfish, turns over your table and starts driving you out of there. Can you imagine how upset you would be? I mean, I think we, you know, we think to ourselves, well, if Jesus came in and told me I was being selfish, I would listen to him. But think about the last time somebody told you you were being selfish. How'd you respond? No, I'm not. I'm not selfish at all. I produce all kinds of fruit. I'm like a fruit basket. I'm just over, over, overflowing with fruit. I'm not selfish at all, right? What would you have done? What would I have done? Which reminds me, Do you know who else doesn't have the advantage of hindsight? Us. Us. I love this church. I love most of you. (laughs) I love being your minister here at this church. And in part, one of the reasons I love being your minister is because I get to see the fruit of this church that you all are producing. And it's a beautiful thing. I wrote down some of the things. I think about those who are tutoring each week at LaRose Elementary, who are giving up their time for the sake of others who can't yet read. I mean, how beautiful is that? I think about those on Wednesday nights who here in our commons area are tutoring through the gospel of Luke, tutoring the language of English in our Friend Speak program. How awesome to see these people from all nations. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations gathered here on Wednesday nights studying the gospel of Luke. Amazing to see that fruit. I think about the story we told last week of adoption. I think about those families in our church who are adopting and fostering, and that's a beautiful thing. I think about those of you who give generously to support our outreach contributions, support missionaries all over the world. I think about those who invite their friends here on Sunday morning. Like I see this just beautiful, ripe fruit that this church is producing. But you want to know the truth? The truth isn't what I think about our fruit. And the truth isn't even what you think about your fruit. You know who's going to determine the truth of our fruit? Our kids and our grandkids. You know, what are they going to say about the fruit of the Highland Church of Christ in this moment when they look back on it with the advantage of hindsight? Think about that. Well, let's let's do an imaginative exercise. Will Will you play along with me for a second? Let's put our imagination caps on or let's play pretend, as my boys say. And I want you to imagine two possible futures for the Highland Church of Christ. In the first of those futures, this church has declined. Maybe we've even closed the doors. And I know that's, that's a difficult future to imagine. It seems impossible, but did you know that nine Nine churches of Christ in America are closing every month. Not every year, every month. And I'm sure all nine churches that closed last month thought they were insulated from that. 
And I think that it's tempting probably to think, well, that will never happen to Highland, but it certainly could happen to Highland. So I want you to imagine, project out with me this future where Highland has declined, even closed its doors, and there's this for sale sign out there on Houston Levy in front of this beautiful property. And I want you to imagine your kids and your grandkids driving by this property on Houston Levy and seeing that for sale sign, and your grandson or your granddaughter asking mom or dad in the front seat, mom, dad, why did that happen? How would your kids answer them? You think, what would the that be? Why did that happen? Isn't that uncomfortable to think about that? I'll tell you, I don't want to think about that at all. Right? But Captain Smith did not think the Titanic would sink. And those in the Jerusalem temple thought that thing would never fall. And here's the truth that we read in the New Testament. The church with the capital C will endure forever. But that does not mean this church with the lowercase c will. Well, that was uncomfortable. Let's switch gears. Let's imagine a second future for this church. I want you to imagine a future where Highland grows. I want you to imagine this future where Highland is a church where your kids want to be and your grandkids want to be here. I mean, can you imagine your grandkids out playing on our playground and in Miss Michelle and Miss Stephanie's classes and our kids in our youth group with Buster and Donnie and Hannah having these transformative experiences at our church? Can you imagine your kids and your grandkids having those experiences here? Can you imagine this church as a church where you would want to bring your friends every Sunday? where you would want to bring somebody. It gets to Wednesday in the week and you're thinking to yourself, I haven't invited anybody yet. I got to bring somebody because we're going to have an experience of God at Highland on Sunday morning that Bob has just got to have. Can you imagine this place where you brought your friend and as they walked in, they were greeted by so many people they couldn't imagine it. You know, they wanted to come back the next week because they felt like they had five best friends after being here for one Sunday. Can you imagine a church like that? Can you imagine a church where HopeWorks graduates would want to come and they wouldn't feel out of place? Where they would come and feel like they were embraced here, like these are my, my people in this place. Can you imagine a church like that? I mean, can you imagine a church that was planning new churches every year in Memphis and around the world? Can you imagine a church that was starting new mission works in parts of our world that have not even heard the name Jesus? Can you imagine these waters in the baptistry swirling every week with new life in Christ? Can you imagine that kind of church? I mean, what do you want to be at that kind of church? You know, the thing is that we're told that in Christ, all things are possible, which is to say both of those futures are possible. Both of them are possible. And here's what I believe. Our distant future is being written right now in our present fruit. Our distant future is being written in our present fruit. It's really tempting to make excuses and to say, well, <clears throat> I'm really busy, really busy. It's hard to invite friends and I got a lot going on. So I can't do friend speak on Wednesday night or something like that. And, and besides, have you seen how Christianity is declining in America in the West? I mean, so many churches 
are declining, God. It's just really not a good season for fruit. So we're going we're gonna to shore things up here. We're going to go really close together. We're going we're gonna to go deep, not wide. That's what we're going to do right now, God. And we're going to produce fruit one day when it's the right season. You know what that sounds like, right? The tree. Jesus, it's not my season. And Jesus says, I don't care what season it is. What I want from you, my people, is fruit. I want more people growing more closely to God inside my body. That's what Jesus longs for. William Temple once said it like this, and it's convicting. He said this, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said like this a little short. He said, the church is only the church when it exists for others. And Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. So at this point in the sermon, we, we really debated on whether we, we end with a hard-hitting story or a satirical video. And it's been a hard week. It's been a hard week. So we decided to go the funny way, okay? And um, if you don't like the, the video, Buster chose it, all right? <clears throat> Buster made me do it, okay? And um, this video, we found this video. We didn't make this video. It's not poking fun at any of you, but you know how when you watch a good comedian, what they do is they reveal things about yourself that you're not really willing to engage until humor kind of breaks down the walls, okay? So this is satire, but it'll make you think. Let's watch. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I don't know who sets the worship center temperature, but why does it have to be so cold? Why do you have to be so right? Heated chairs are now being installed. This one wants a small church, but I'm afraid if it's too small, they're gonna make me volunteer like crazy. And I don't stack chairs, do I? Makes total sense. Join now and we'll let you decide the size of our church. We're millennials and we want a church that- Say no more. Any requests you have will be granted immediately. Parking is horrible. It takes me almost six minutes to get from my car to the building. Oh. It's going to take me six seconds to tell you a valet service is on the way. My pastor's preaching, it's all over the map. I say, oh, I don't know, stick with the books of the Bible. We should be only exegetical. Okay, next week we start John chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll even start pronouncing that word the way you said it. Hey, I'd like this sermon to be no longer than 30 minutes. How does 15 minutes sound? Hey, anybody willing to go 15 should be willing to go to 10. <laughs> you drive a hard bargain. But from now on, five-minute sermons it is. <laughs> now you're talking. Me Church, where it's all about you. Does that sound great to go to that church? Right? All right, that's a little painful. You know, you and I are consumers by nature. That's, that's what we are. So much of our life revolves around consumption. But here's what Jesus challenges us. Not at church. Not at church. Coming to church is not about you. You don't come to church to consume. You come to church to produce fruit in this place. 
And what we're doing as we gather in this place is preparing you to send you out so that you might produce fruit for the sake of the body of Christ in the world. We are not called to be consumers. We're called to be producers. And so what we do as a community of faith, what we're, what we're doing when we're doing our best work, even in funny videos like this, what we're doing when we do our best work is we are challenging each other to constantly be looking outwards, to constantly be thinking about those people who are not here yet because the church exists for those who are not yet her members. So let me give you three challenges, okay? The first is a spiritual exercise, and the second two are something you can do. The first is this. When you pull into the parking lot, what if you said to yourself, as you pulled down that drive from Houston Levy, pulling into the parking lot, what if you said to yourself every Sunday, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. You know, the visitor parking's closer to the door. That's okay. It's not about me. It's too cold or it's too hot. That's okay. It's not about me. The songs are too old school or too new school. That's okay. It's not about me. Eric's preaching stinks. That's okay. It's not about, not about you. Second, what if you did something? What if you joined our hospitality ministry? So the hospitality ministry are those people standing at the doors, greeting you as you walk in, not shaking today, doing elbow bumps like that, right? But you're coming anyways. Why don't you come 10 minutes earlier and greet people? You know, what you have at the temple are people who are making it harder for others to come into the presence of God. So what if you did the opposite and you made it easier for people to come into the presence of God? Because you know it's hard to come to a church where you don't know anybody. And can, can, you, can you remember how difficult that is to sit there when you don't know anybody? Scary. What if you joined our hospitality ministry? There's stuff in the link today, info about how you can do that. And then lastly, let me give you a challenge. When was the last time you invited somebody to church? Think about it. Have you invited somebody this year? Did you invite somebody in 2019? Okay. You want to know the easiest way to make church not about you? It's like Christian magic. You want to know how you do it? You invite somebody else. Because I guarantee you, the morning you invite somebody else, you will not think one time about your experience that morning. You know whose experience you're going to be thinking about? Theirs. Right? You are going to try with every ounce of your being to make sure they have this tremendous experience of God's presence, that they connect with others in the body of Christ. And you're going to go home that night and you're going to call them and you're going to ask about that experience. And you know you're going to go through the whole Sunday morning and you know who you're not going to think about once? You. You. You know, inviting friends isn't like a manipulative growth strategy. It's a spiritual discipline. I invite others into the presence of God because that's what it means to produce fruit. That's what it means. Church, I'm telling you, our distant future is being written right now in the fruit that you and I are producing. And as I think about those two possible futures for this church, I'll tell you which one I desire. And I believe that is the future that God desires for this church. And so we are being called to produce fruit. Okay. Are you producing any fruit? I hope you will. Let's stand and let's sing together and worship.
Your love never fails and never gives up and never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up and never runs out on me.